Because for the past several years I've been a student at Florida State University, I receive periodically uh, these in my text box. They're called the Emergency Alert System. And, and an FSU alert means something to most people, except for when you live in Pasadena. Now, here's the thing. This past week I got one, and, and, and there are some important things that are written on the FSU email and or text alert. The email alert, it actually says at the beginning of it, a message from Florida State University approved for dissemination to all current students taking classes, faculty, staff, and campus partners by Assistant Vice President for Campus Safety and Chief of Police David L. Perry. So right away you know this is official. It has the authoritative stamp of Florida State University. Now, the contents of these things vary. This particular week, uh, it was a crime bulletin. And I'd like to read from the crime bulletin, if, it, if I can. On 10-13-15, at about 1.54 a.m. in the 500 block of Park Avenue, an FSU student reported she was the victim of a battery. The student advised she, uh, she was walking when a male approached her and attempted to make conversation. The student reported she walked away and the male ran up behind her and attempted to cover her mouth with his hand. The student resisted and screamed and the suspect ran away. The victim was not injured. Now, at the tail end of this message, there is another reminder. This message is brought to you as a public service by the Florida State University Public uh, Police Department and is intended to provide you with information to assist you with making informed decisions concerning your safety. Now, these are alarming, but in some ways, they're good. I mean, in a lot of ways, if you live on campus and if you're a college female and you're hearing about some perv walking the campus and hurting girls, and then you need to know. Don't go near there or be diligent and alert. But I, I think to myself, imagine someone getting one of these emergency alerts and actually being offended. We live in the culture of offended, so I'm sure that there is some pocket in the world that would be offended by this. I was conjecturing that their response might be, how dare you bother me filling my email or text box with your warnings? I don't trust the police or their perspective on who is a criminal and who isn't. I'm going to ignore this so-called public safety warning. In fact, I'm offended that you brought it up in the first place. Now you say, well, who would do that? And I would today like to let you know that the essence of the Christian message is a, is a proclamation, a warning. It is good news, and we'll get to that. But the reaction of human nature, all of us by nature, is to take offense to it. You think, that's strange. I don't remember taking offense to it. Well, then there was some work of miracle grace working in your life. Because if you hear the implications of the Christian message, it is, you need forgiveness. In and of itself, that must offend the soul who is proud and insisting that they are morally pure. Or liking maybe perhaps to go, well, I'm not perfect, but, you know, mostly. Uh, you know, the idea that you would need to have somebody forgive you for your sins is offensive. And now, mind you, oftentimes the way Christians or so-called Christians, because I'm not certain that everybody who's done this is in fact a Christian, have presented the nature of the gospel or the message of the gospel has been really offensive. Not just the contents, just the way they went about it. They communicated it in such a way that people said, I want nothing to do with that merely because of the person who is presenting this to me. Perhaps you've seen this person in your workspace the religious person who leaves tracks on desks when people didn't ask them to. 
or awkwardly introduces Jesus into the conversation when it is just weird to do so at that moment. I think about people in the church, and perhaps you recognize if you've read the New Testament that there is the responsibility of the church to talk about Jesus and proclaim the salvation of the Lord. As old as the creeds that form the basis of Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic and Protestant churches, the Nicene and the Apostolic Apostles' Creed all say for us and for our salvation. The, the idea is that the Christian message is a saving message. It may seem basic, but if you take away the things about Christianity that effectively are the reason or the means by which it saves, because you don't want to offend people, you've completely taken away the essence of Christianity. Now, the task of Jesus is to report accurately, I'm sorry, the, the task of the church of Jesus is to report accurately what he has said. People, some, all of us at one time or another in our lives may not want to hear it. We may find it intrusive. There are many who question the authority that Jesus would have to say about anything. There are actually more people that would question the authority of the historical account that the Gospel of John provides us was John accurately reporting what Jesus actually said about who he claimed to be? This message today is part of our Vision Month series. If you are not familiar, our vision is to shine the light of God's grace and love to San Gabriel Valley and the world, to L.A.'s San Gabriel Valley and the world around us. Now, we have a particular mission statement, and you can see it all over the place. In fact, our goal is to make it so obvious and irritating that you've actually memorized it. And that is to revive believers, to reach friends, and to renew culture. We talked last week about the essence of what it means to see a person who is a follower of Jesus brought back to life by his grace and love. And you can listen to these online if you'd like to get a review. Today, we talk about our mission to reach friends with the gospel. These are friends who do not understand why Jesus came and don't understand perhaps that Jesus is even alive to have relationship with. But to do that, we've got to actually first take in the first four verses of today's passage from John 3 and review a bit of what we've said in the last two weeks, but also point out what is subtly obvious from the text, which is that if we're going to build our life, or in our particular case as a church, we're going to build our church on the words of Jesus, we've got to have some confidence that these actually are the words of Jesus. Jesus alone, we've covered in weeks past, can speak with an authority to say, this is true, the antithesis of it is false. Jesus' words, it is because Jesus is God. And you see this in this passage, Jesus telling Nicodemus, a leader in Israel, a spiritual leader who came to him and asked him questions about the nature of the kingdom of God and about the nature of spiritual transformation and didn't understand them and wondered, where do you get the idea that somehow or another this is okay? Or, Jesus, how do we know that what you're saying is true? And we begin our passage in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus asking a question that is legitimate. And it is completely legitimate for people to say, I'm not sure I buy your Christianity thing. I understand why people don't do that. Uh, there are times where 
there are moments where you run headfirst into an aspect of Christianity that may be difficult to, to put your arms around and say, you know, I'm going to embrace this. In the case of Jesus' divinity, many people walk the other way at that moment. And yet Jesus says this, Nicodemus asks him in John chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, how can these things be? This is the question. How, 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 that doesn't make sense. Jesus had told him, if you're going to be in the kingdom of God, you've got to be born of the Spirit. You've got to be born new. You may have heard the term born again. Jesus is communicating that if you're going to really be in God's kingdom, you're not just born physically into this world. There's going to have to be something that transforms within you spiritually. You're going to have to be born of the Spirit. In John 1.12, as we've looked in weeks past, it was John who said, to all who received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. So Jesus answers him in this. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And here's the statement that I think all of us need to either embrace or not embrace as we look at the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. In making such a statement in verse 13, what Jesus is saying is, I came from heaven, which means I've existed from all eternity. I'm God, and I'm speaking with the authority and the divine nature of God. I know because I've been there. No one's been there except the one who came from there and the one who's going there, and that would be me, the Son of Man. Now, in John 1, it says, through him all things were made. Perhaps if you memorize the Nicene Creed as a child, as did I, you remember this portion of the Nicene Creed. Through him all things were made for us men and for our salvation. Ho, oh, there we are again. Through him all things were made. And then salvation was brought to us in Christ. The actual text in John 1 says, everything that has been made has been made through him. And by implication, it means that Jesus couldn't have been made. John's gospel declares that Jesus is the one through whom all things were created. He pre-existed before coming in a human body. Jesus claimed to be this God. You say, well, how do I know if John's gospel is reliable? Well, very simply because when it was penned, the other disciples were around to say, you know what, this is fooey. This is not true. Others could have come and said, and there's no historical documents of people going, you know, the guy who claims to have written that John thing wasn't really John, and it's not really reliable. And, you know, I walked with Jesus, and there's nothing that has any resemblance whatsoever to Jesus contained in there. As well, you can compare John's gospel very much to the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are very different. And at the same time, while penned differently and constructed differently and written by different folks, have amazing amounts of complementary information. There, there was no shortage of people who were alive when the, when the apostles were saying Jesus is alive. When the apostles were dying because they dared to proclaim that Jesus was alive and that he brought salvation, people were around that could have refuted what they said. 
In fact, one of the greatest arguments, we talk about it every Easter, one of the greatest arguments for the reality of the gospel is the willingness of the followers of Jesus to actually die for the faith. And you might say, well, don't crazy people die all the time for their cult leader? Well, no. Uh, In this particular case, Jesus' followers would have been the ones that made up the lie. People who create this lie in, in conspiracy with one another would not be willing to die for their own lie, particularly if that lie yielded them nothing of earthly benefit. There are so many convincing realities that help us to have confidence that the gospel is not only authentically John's gospel, but that it is authoritative because of John's relationship, his unique relationship with Jesus. Now you might ask, while John was a close friend of Jesus and present at all the events, wasn't John a fisherman? I mean, he's not the brightest guy in the world. But philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once quipped that the Bible was written by, not by geniuses, but by apostles. The idea being that what Peter said in 2 Peter 1.21, that there's no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Our confidence that this is in fact what Jesus said is directly related to the resurrection of Jesus, because if that happened then we can have confidence that his disciples, his apostles, were given the authority and moved along by the same Holy Spirit that spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament. We are given confidence to know that the scriptures can be relied upon because there were contemporaries of John who could have very clearly contradicted him if they had chosen to do so. We have come to a place, when I say we, believing Christians, and in particular our church, we are basing what we do and why we do it on Scripture alone, which is the mantra of the Protestant Reformation, that Scripture alone will be the measure or the rule or the guiding thing of faith and practice. And so today as we talk about the gospel, the gospel that we as Christians and as a church wish to reach friends with, We have to look to Scripture to say, let's make certain we are all on the same page about what this gospel really is. We reach people because of the nature of the gospel. We sense that we want to help people understand what Jesus has done for them because he has done it for us, and we are merely sharing that good news. The church is required. Now, we're going to learn to do it in a way that hopefully is winsome and careful and kind and demonstrative of all sorts of mercy and good works. So how the church has done it, I mean, let's be frank, it's stunk at it in big ways in my lifetime. The televangelists don't help. So, you know, in addition to the crazy friend you have at work, you also have uh, something on the television every week for all your friends to go, yeah, not going to happen. So I would say it is really critical for us to maybe come to some closure about what we believe Scripture actually says. And so we're going to start this in two ways. One is we're going to define salvation, and then the other is going to look at what it means to decline salvation. So in defining salvation, my first point today, we're looking at the removal of a curse. Defining, if we're going to define salvation, what it is effectively is the removal of a curse. In the verses 14 through 17, hear what Jesus is saying as he is referencing something from the Old Testament. 
And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is referencing an incident from Numbers 21 in the Old Testament when the people of Israel rebelled against God, were punished for this rebellion, cried out for mercy, and were provided a means by which the consequences of their sin could be healed. And so I want to read it so it makes sense to you. All right, from Numbers 21, here's the actual incident. The people, speaking of the people of Israel, became impatient. They're, way, they're working their way through the desert. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Quote, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away these serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten who sees it shall live So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is a metaphor, really, for what's going on in Jesus' ministry to people. The Bible says that human beings have both the nature of lawbreakers and we actually break laws. Uh, It's been said, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The choice of our first parents, Adam and Eve, according to the book of Genesis, this choice brought us into a place of experiencing judgment or a curse. Now, you may say, why a curse? That just sounds so like culty or coveny or like you'd be a bunch of Satanists sitting around putting a curse on somebody. But a curse is nothing more than judgment. It's some way of saying what you've done is wrong and there's going to be... Uh, a, a result or a consequence to your actions. The Israelites had grumbled against God and against Moses. They had very easily forgotten how gracious God had been to rescue them from the slavery in which they found themselves. So they've forgotten this already, and now they're going to complain about the food. Now, I think this is a sermon for another day altogether, but what the point is that God was disciplining them and actually they were experiencing judgment for their sin against God. They cried out for mercy and a salvation was provided, an opportunity for the curse to be lifted. Someone might say, I'm not down with the curse thing yet. Help me out some more. Okay. If a curse is really nothing more than a just judgment, something we would want, brought about in a court of law. Uh, For instance, if a young woman is victimized on a college campus by an assailant and that assailant is caught, it is both just and loving for that person to pay a penalty for their crime. Know this, it's not just loving for the victim who gets to see justice, it's loving for the criminal 
It is a a divine means of grace that our laws prevent us from acting according to our base nature. I assure you that if those signs that said speed limit 65 miles an hour didn't exist on the 210, my base nature would be taking me home in dangerous fashion. I go fast. I need the restraint of the human law. It's a good thing. So justice is not merely making somebody who's been assaulted feel like justice has been done and the person who has done this has been punished. It's also loving to place onto people a means of saying, you can't do this anymore. This is what's going to happen if you continue to act in a way that's dangerous to yourself or acting according to your base nature. Justice is important to us. It's critical to us. It's a huge part of life. It's a huge part of being Christians in the world. We've been told by the prophet Micah to pursue justice. We have entire movements in our country created by the need to seek and obtain justice for those who do not have it. One would not think it was cool or okay if a racist police officer shot an African-American youth for no reason at all, unprovoked and completely because he was racist, and then went before a judge and the judge said, okay, we're just going to forgive it, no big deal. We'll look the other way on this one. The outcry for justice would be loud and completely justified. Well, what happens oftentimes is when we talk about our own sin or when the gospel of Jesus gets talked about in terms of a curse, the natural reaction of the human being who's proud about their own state is to say, who are you? How can these things be? You're telling me that the there has been judgment placed on me by virtue of my nature and some of my own actions. In the case of our sin, God couldn't maintain his just character by simply allowing our sin against his holiness and saying, ah, no big deal. It would be unjust to ignore our sin and it would also be unloving to us to allow us to continue to harm ourselves and others by following our base selfish nature. That nature, oftentimes, I can speak from myself, seeks our own benefit at the expense of others, at times materially, but often emotionally, where we believe it is okay for us to be cruel in what we say or how we say it because we want people to do what we want them to do. All of these things are evidence of my own brokenness. Is it really that difficult? For us to look around at the world we live in and see crime and see not just crime, I'm talking about like global crime, geopolitical crime, regimes torturing thousands of people, the evil that exists in our world. Is it really that difficult for us to believe that our world sits under a curse? I look at my own heart sometimes and I recognize that when I hear the name of somebody that I don't like very much who may have harmed me in the past and that thing comes up in you that goes, oh, that person. Am I alone in this? Because I got to tell you, at that moment, that's my having to face down my nature, which says, I selfishly want to impose some kind of justice on them. I want to judge them. I want to be harsh with them. I want to harm them or see them harmed. See, I see this in my own heart. Now I have to face it and repent. I'm not going to go out and hurt somebody, but I can tell you that nature to seek my own good at the expense of others is real. It's real in all of us, at least according to what Jesus says. 
But here's what's cool. Jesus came to save. John 3.17 says, The Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Like Moses' snake in the desert, Jesus was lifted up on a cross to remove our curse. Like this bronze snake that they could all look at and the curse would be lifted and they would be healed and forgiven. Jesus says in John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Salvation is the removal of a curse that exists. Prism's vision is to be a church of revived believers who share this good news with friends willing to hear it. We live under a curse. Jesus offers us an opportunity to have that curse lifted. Part of the process of starting Prism Church was going through what's called an assessment center. Carolyn and I both had to go to Seattle where our network headquarters were at the time. Now that's in Dallas, Texas. An assessment process, which we've been through too. We went through this one for when we were a part of helping start this church and also when we were a part of Centerpoint Church, the church that we were part of planting in Tallahassee, Florida. And the assessment center for the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network both uh, really grill you. You have to send in references. If you want to be a church planter in their network, if you want their good housekeeping seal of approval, you have to have multiple references. They sit with you and they ask you really probing questions about your marriage. They look into your finances. Are you completely overrun with debt? They want to know that you live and can survive the pressure cooker that is starting a church. Part of that process as well is them saying, we would like to hear you articulate what it is you want to do. So before I can even go to a place where they say, okay, we would like you to start a church there, I have to kind of sort of explain to them what it is that I'm after. So in doing so, I had to produce a document. And this is one of the paragraphs that came from that document. You want to know the founding paragraph or one of the founding paragraphs, why we even thought this was an important thing to do. Our original vision statement said is this, I want a church that has a visible impact on the communities in which it lives. I would desire to see the church be a manifestation of God's grace to the needy and unchurched as much as it would be an internal comfort to the believers who are already part of the fellowship. I would love to be part of a church where the ethos was to leave the 99 sheep to go find the one whom was lost. I want to be part of a church where I can be confident that friends would be welcomed, included, and instantaneously sensed that our community was a safe place for them. This is because I've had some experiences in churches where that wasn't the case. And I'm certain that some of you have too. We've thought, you know, this church is okay, but I would never bring a friend here. Have you ever said that? Hopefully you haven't said that here, because that would be contrary to what we're hoping to accomplish. I know for a fact that this was part of what we did. Now, we've obviously considerably downsized this statement to revive believers, reach friends, and renew culture. But this is the heart of what we want to do. We, we want people to see the gospel of Jesus as a way for them to be rescued into relationship with Jesus. So if we define salvation, we 
define it together as the removal of the curse. And this is really what's involved when people decline salvation. It is really the retention of a curse. Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's all of us. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Most love John 3.16 and 3.17. That's why you see it on placards at the World Series or some other sporting contest with a man in a rainbow wig. You see people are excited about John 3.16 and even John 3.17, but fail to read verses 18 and 19, which declare why Jesus did not come to condemn. And the reason Jesus didn't come to condemn is because we're already under a curse and currently condemned because of our sin. The church doesn't have to be judgmental because we all have already been judged. This is the status of a believer apart from Christ. It's somebody who says, you know what, if the scriptures are true, if Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers are true, then we are in a place of being estranged from God under a curse And for me to say, I don't want Jesus, is effectively saying that I want to stay. I want to retain this curse in my life. The job of the church is not to condemn anyone. There's no need to do so. Because according to Jesus, all humans stand condemned already. Jesus provides the means of salvation. The escape from the curse by simply looking to his cross. Prism Church is to exalt Christ, to lift him so that all can see him. That is in what we do and how we live and how we love. The scriptures say that when that happens, when Jesus in his glory is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. He is light, and we've become children of that light. In John 12, 31 through 36, the apostle John says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now, this is Jesus speaking, Will the ruler of this world be cast out? And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. While Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. The work of the gospel is ultimately the work of God. People have to believe. You and I had to, if you're a Christian, had to come to a place of saying, I believe this. No one's forcing me to. And if you're here and you're a skeptic or you never really understood or heard the gospel before, I think it's fair to say you know, I'm processing this. I'm not sure how I feel about this. And it's okay for you to be here amongst a bunch of Christians and do that. We want you to feel comfortable asking questions. I may have some of the answers. I may have none of the answers, but we're here together to pilgrim. The one answer we do have 
with clarity from the mouth of Jesus is, is that that curse that we were sitting under, we no longer have to worry about that. If you trust in him, if you look to him, you no longer have to fear judgment. You no longer have to fear that he does anything but love you unconditionally because of what Christ has done through you. So our communication of this message, the work of our faith, the reaching of our friends is not really an obligation as much as it is an opportunity to walk with Jesus as he empowers people to believe who he really is. This is what happened with the gospel of John's writer, John, and his brother, James, and their friends, Simon Peter, and his brother, Andrew. They're walking along, fishermen, though they be, and Jesus comes into their life. And this is what he says to them in Matthew 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Now this is Matthew's gospel talking about the author of the gospel of John. In the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending the nets. And he called them immediately. They left their boat, their father, and followed him. Come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. When I was in college at West Virginia, I heard the, the first of this type of thing where I was supposed to be a means by which others would get and understand Jesus. I always wanted somebody to, you know, to have a conversation with somebody about Jesus and have them go, that sounds really attractive. I'd like to have him in my life. That didn't often seem to be the way it went, though, and some of that was my own doing, and some of it is because, frankly, you have to, it, this is a faith that comes from the Holy Spirit's birthing in us. You can't make somebody believe. Nobody could make me believe. God superintended the process of me coming to know him in a way that I couldn't define for anybody or put in a book. What you need to do is ruin a guy's life and then have him look to Jesus. I mean, this is what happened to me. And I thought, okay, well, but I'm not going to impose that on you. I'm hoping that it comes a lot easier than that. Needless to say, some friends of mine and I started praying that I would have an opportunity to be used by God to lead somebody to Christ. Now, to some of you, that may sound like an odd prayer, but I really thought that that would be fun. You know, I mean, that was really my thought process. I, I think it would be great. And I was particularly excited because I thought, you know, as opposed to the alternative, which is people getting mad at me, which I've already, had already experienced. So naturally, I just clammed up and didn't say anything to anybody. But when I prayed, I remembered that not long after that, I started having a conversation with the young woman who lived in our dorm named Sharon. And Sharon said, I'm really interested in what you have to say about this subject. I mean, almost verbatim like that. So she and I talked one day. We were sitting in her dorm room. And she goes, well, tell me about what it means to be a Christian. So I worked through this little booklet with her. And at the conclusion of this little booklet, it says you can ask somebody if they want to receive Christ. And so I looked at her and I said, do you think being a Christian is something you'd like to do? And she went, Yes. And so I thought, okay, I wasn't clear because she said yes. And so I said, would, would, would you like to pray with me now to do that? And she said, yes. And I thought, this is amazing. This is working. Somebody actually longs for this. Somebody actually wants this. I've never seen this before. Well, a long, long time later, last year to be specific, on my blog here at Little Prism Church in Pasadena, I, I got a comment on one of the things I wrote. And this is the first I've heard in, since 1984 of this encounter. 
And she wrote to me and said, Chuck, you brought me to Christ at Westchester Carlisle Resident Hall back in October 1984, and I was saved. That was the beginning of my walk, and I continue today. I just wanted to let you know that I don't know where I would be without Christ in my life, and I have you to thank for it. His love amazes me. I'm glad that you continue to lead others to him. Blessings to you, your ministry, and your family. Sharon, I hadn't heard from this girl in 30 years. It's a long time. And I was comforted to know that her faith was genuine and real and it had lasted three decades. And I don't share this with you today so that you can go, what an impressive pastor we have. But to tell you, that was the moment. Because when I had the opportunity to share with somebody what the gospel really was, that it was the opportunity for them to have a curse, a judgment, they could be liberated from judgment because Jesus was judged in our place and they said, yes, I want that. I was hooked. This was the first time I'd ever had anybody respond affirmatively. And I remember thinking, I have never experienced the adrenaline jolt that was being used by God. And this is for everybody. I wasn't always a pastor, friends. I was a goofed up 20-year-old kid. And, and friend, you may say, I, I'm not somebody who can be used of God. I'm no fisher of men. I'm, no, I'm not somebody who, who, can, who has any capacity for that. There are two things that you need to realize. One is, none of us are. We're all Peter and James and John and Andrew, fishermen, uneducated in spiritual matters. What makes it powerful is that we're walking with Jesus. And we're not condemning people along the way. We're communicating to them that whatever condemnation exists can be lifted by their simply looking at and following Jesus with us. I, I leave you today with the words of Jesus. Actually, I'm sorry, with a thought about Jesus from one of my favorite theologians, Charles Spurgeon. And he says this, when Jesus is lifted up in his church, his presence is the church's power. The shout of a king is in the midst of her. Quote, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Let us go out this morning on our work of soul fishing, looking up in faith and around us in solemn anxiety. Let us toil till night comes, and we shall not labor in vain. For he who bids us to let down the net will fill it with fishes. My prayer is that Prism Church would be a place where we would reach our friends with the good news that Jesus wants relationship with them. Let us pray. Father, today we're grateful for your care for us and for the proclamation of the gospel, which is that Jesus, you have ended a curse. You have lifted a curse. You have provided the absence of judgment for all who would look to you. As Moses lifted that bronze snake in the desert and the Israelites were healed, all who would look to you would be healed. I pray, Father, for grace for us to be able to communicate that to our friends because some here almost immediately 
as do uh, as we do that um, it's hard to hear that we need to be forgiven it's hard to hear that we're broken and in need of a savior that that's not easy to hear but it's true I know that for myself and so I pray that you would give us uh, the capacity as a church to share the truth of the gospel with great care with great tenderness with great humility And then, Father, would you go before us in your Holy Spirit to enable people to have hearts that are soft, to no longer fear what they might know is true about them and and embrace what you say, which is if they'll look to you, you'll forgive them and extend nothing but kindness and mercy. We need you to make this work, though. So we look to you, Jesus.